Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Episode 108. Who they were, what they did, and how. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Viborg Thun. Are you tired of the winter darkness, dear listener? Are you feeling a chill in your bones that never really lets up? Well... Let your humble host take you on a journey far to the south. We cross the equator and watch as the south cross rises on the night sky. The air becomes balmier, drier, and the sun shines brighter for each latitude we traverse. After a long journey, we see a vast land stretch before us. It appears red-orange in color from above. As we get closer, we see magnificent cities, beautiful people, pristine beaches, and seemingly endless desert landscapes. Almost exactly at the center sits a large rock. It's almost blood-red against the cobalt sky. The white people, who came to this ancient land just a couple of centuries ago, tend to call it Ayers Rock. To the Aborigines, who has called this island continent home for many, many thousands of years, its name has never been anything but Uluru. To the north, the desert gives way to lush rainforests. To the east and south lies the best beaches to surf, the grandest city called Sydney, 
the capital Canberra, as well as most of the other large metropolises, all of them gorgeous and wealthy. To the west, most of the land is rural farmland, and the so-called bush and outback. But we also have the world's most geographically isolated major city, Perth. The land I am talking about is of course none other than the land known colloquially as Down Under, Australia. This beautiful land is also deadly. Very much so. A funny saying you might have heard goes like this. What things does not try to kill you in Australia? Answer, some of the sheep. It's an exaggeration, of course, but it has a certain ring of truth to it as well. In the water lapping against its idyllic beaches lurk man-eating sharks, man-eating crocodiles, lethal water snakes, poisonous fish, and even more poisonous jellyfish that will kill a man within three hours after caressing him slightly with its tentacles. On land, there are dozens of various kinds of spiders that can kill. One hundred different types of venomous snakes are, and I kid you not, huge and very aggressive birds called the cassowary that can slice a human open, killer bees, and of course, the most dangerous animal of all, human serial killers. Tonight's expose centers on a killer couple. They are perhaps not the most famous killers in the world, but their depravity and evil acts stand back to none of our well-known serial killer superstars. The pair reveled in kidnapping, torture, rape, and murder, and four young women was brutally murdered at the hands of Catherine and David Burney, the Moorhouse murderers. To support the show and become a true TSK aficionado, head on over to patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast. You can help out a lot by donating one dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, or to be featured on the show by donating fifteen dollars. All patrons donating will get access to bonus material. But those joining the TSK $10 Plus Club will get access to all bonus material. Again, dear listener, that's patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast. Born within a couple of months of each other in the first half of 1951, Catherine Harrison and David Burney both had difficult childhoods. David Burney was the first of five children to an alcoholic mother and physically handicapped father, who lived in what was then a semi-rural suburb in eastern Perth. Rumours about incest within the family abounded, and the Burney house was filthy. Mrs. Burney swore and was ill-kempt, did not cook family meals, and was known to exchange sexual favours with taxi drivers in lieu of payment. 
When they moved suburbs, the Burnies began living next door to where a lonely motherless twelve-year-old girl, Catherine Harrison, lived with relatives. When she was two years old, Catherine's mother had died giving birth to a baby brother, who then also died. Catherine moved to South Africa, where she was sexually abused and raped by her own father, until, at around age thirteen, she was taken back to Perth by her maternal grandparents, when her strict and isolating grandmother had an epileptic attack that left her unable to care for Catherine. She was shipped off to her aunt and uncle in the inner southeastern Perth suburb of Lathlane. Living next door was a smart, wild teenage boy around her own age, and before they turned fourteen, neighbors David Burney and Catherine Harrison were in a sexual relationship. Both had already racked up ample sexual experience after years of sexual abuse. The kind of sexual experience they did have might very well have started them off to a deviant and perverted path, where normal human intimacy and love had little or no place at all. In addition, David Burney was a brilliant conversationalist, having read up on everything from politics to science to the Egyptian pyramids, and he enthralled Catherine. She had eyes for no other boy but David, and she would do whatever he wanted. But after years of welfare officers repeatedly removing the neglected Bernie children from their parents due to neglect, all five were sent off to different foster homes. And so, David and Catherine were torn apart by the government, at least for a while. David Burney was skinny and small of stature and left school early, where he had been bullied for years to become an apprentice jockey. At Ascot Racecourse, David developed a reputation for hurting the animals and for exposing himself. He was fired after the boss learned he had tried to rape an elderly lady at his boarding house after breaking into her room naked with a stocking over his head. David Burney had, during the years of abuse, bullying, and crime, also become addicted to more and more extreme pornography, fetishism, paraphilia, and he had an insatiable hunger for sex. When torn away from his Catherine, David tried to meet other girls to have sex with. Mostly, they refused him, and according to his own brother, if David did not have sex every day, he would throw temper tantrums. Once, after a longer period of not having sex, David asked his own brother if he could have anal intercourse with him. His brother was disgusted by this and flatly refused him, only to wake up later that night by David trying to force his penis inside him. Luckily, the brother managed to force David off him and threatened serious violence if he ever tried anything like that ever again. As far as I know, David left his brother alone after that. David Burney was reunited with Catherine in the mid to late 1960s, when they were both in their late teens. David already had a juvenile record for petty theft, burglary, and assault. 
Catherine had left school to work as a machinist in a factory, making window blinds. Catherine did all she could to satiate him, and did whatever he wanted of her, no matter how depraved. Together they went on a crime rampage that would land them both in jail. On the 11th of June, 1969, David and Catherine pleaded guilty in the Perth Police Court to eleven charges of breaking, entering, and stealing goods worth nearly three thousand Australian dollars. The court was told that Catherine was pregnant to another man. They admitted to stealing equipment and using it to try to crack a safe at the Waverley Drive-In Theatre. Catherine was placed on probation, and David was sent to jail for nine months. On the 9th of July, 1969, they were again committed for trial in the Supreme Court on eight further charges of breaking, entering, and stealing. They again pleaded guilty, and David had three years' imprisonment added to his sentence. Catherine was put on probation for a further four years. But... Jail and sentencing was no deterrent for the young crime couple. On the 21st of June 1970, David broke out of Carnet Prison and teamed up with Catherine again. When they were apprehended, just shy of three weeks later on the 10th of July, they were charged on 53 counts of stealing, receiving, breaking and entering, being unlawfully on premises, unlawfully driving motor vehicles, and unlawfully using vehicles. In their possession, police found clothing, wigs, bedding, radios, food, books, 100 sticks of gel ignite, 100 detonators, and three fuses. Catherine admitted that she knew that she had done wrong, but said that she loved Bernie so much that there was nothing she wouldn't do for him. David was sentenced to two and a half years in prison, and Catherine received six months. Her newborn baby was taken from her by welfare workers and held until her release. Out of prison a few months later, and away from the evil influence of David Bernie, Catherine went to work as a live-in domestic for a family in Fremantle. For the first time in her life, the scrawny young woman seemed to have found some stability. Donald McLaughlin, the son of the family she worked for, fell in love with her, and they married on the 31st of May, 1972. It was also Catherine's 21st birthday. Shortly after, she gave birth to the first of their six children. They named the baby boy Little Donny after his father. Seven months later, Donny was killed when he was crushed to death by a car in front of his mother. This event probably didn't do Catherine any favors psychiatrically, and it also caused her to pine even more for her first and only love, David Burney. No one was surprised when she left her husband Donald. The family had been living in a state housing commission home in the working-class suburb of Victoria Park. 
Donald McLaughlin was unemployed, and Catherine had to look after him, their six children, and her own father and uncle, the latter two having seriously sexually abused her all through her young childhood. The place they lived was like a pigsty. She took no pride in the kids or the house. There was never any money for food. One day she rang her husband and said she wasn't coming back. She had been seeing David Burney behind his back for the previous two years, and now she was going back to him. After thirteen years apart, she moved back with David. Although they never married, Catherine changed her name to Burney by deed poll and became his common-law wife. They moved into three Moorhouse Street in Villagey, a working-class Fremantle suburb outside of Perth. David Burney got a job selling car parts at a wreckers' yard in Myaree, a four-minute drive from the house, where he was known as a reliable, trustworthy, intelligent, and happy-go-lucky man. However, the Burney household was far from normal. James Burney, David's younger brother, stayed with the couple for a short time when he was released from prison after serving five months for indecently interfering with his six-year-old niece. Apparently sexual depravity ran in the family, and he told a reporter, and I quote, The six-year-old led me on. You don't know what they can be like. When I left prison, I had nowhere to go. I couldn't go back to my mother's place because I had assaulted her, and there was a restraining order out against me. I had a couple of fights with Mum, and the police chased me off. Mum has alcohol problems, so David and Catherine let me move in. They weren't real happy about it, and David kept saying that he was going to kill me to keep me in line. End quote. James added that David Burney had few friends, he was heavily into kinky sex, and had a big pornographic video collection. He has to have sex four or five times a day, James said of his brother. I saw him use a hypodermic of that stuff you have when they're going to put stitches in your leg. It makes you numb. He put the needle in his penis. Then he had sex. End quote. The killings started in 1986. David and Catherine Burney were in their mid-thirties and had tried everything sexually together. They wanted new kicks. They discussed abduction and rape. David turned Catherine on by telling her that she would achieve incredible orgasms by watching him penetrate another woman who was bound and gagged. Catherine believed him. She always believed her David. Their first opportunity came on the 6th of October, 1986, when the beautiful 22-year-old student Mary Nielsen turned up at the Burney house to buy some car tires. She had approached David at his work at the spare parts yard, and he had suggested that she called by his house for a better bargain. Mary was a brunette, attractive, bright, and was studying psychology at the University of Western Australia. She worked part-time at a suburban delicatessen and had hopes of taking a job as a counsellor with the community welfare department. Her parents were both academics, 
and were in the UK on holiday when their daughter disappeared. Mary was last seen leaving the shop on that fateful Monday, the 6th of October, to attend a university lecture, but she never made it. Her gallant sedan was found six days later left in a riverside car park opposite police headquarters. David Burney had driven it there. As Mary Nielsen entered the Burney house, she was seized at knife point, bound and gagged and chained to the bed. Catherine Burney watched as her lover repeatedly raped the girl. She asked him questions about what turned him on the most. This way she would know what to do to excite him. Catherine wanted that Mary Nielsen eventually had to die. And she was sure David wanted to kill as well. But it was something that she and David hadn't yet properly discussed. That night they took the girl to the Glen Eagles National Park, where David raped her again, then wrapped a nylon cord around her neck and slowly tightened it with a tree branch as a makeshift garotte. Mary Nielsen choked to death on her knees at his feet. It was a slow, traumatic, an extremely painful death. When she was almost dead, David then stabbed her through the torso with a knife and buried her in a shallow grave. He told Catherine that a stab wound would allow any gases to escape as the body decomposed. He had read it somewhere in a book. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations, but never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serial killer. The second killing followed the typical path of serial killers. It was an escalation in depravity and evil. The murder took place two weeks after the killing of Mary and started with the abduction of 15-year-old Susanna Candy as she hitchhiked along the Sterling Highway in Claremont. Susanna was a pretty girl that was universally liked by her peers and family. She too had long brown hair, but she was much smaller and looked very much like the child she was. From what I could gather from photographs, she also wore braces. An outstanding student at the Hollywood High School, Susanna lived at home in Netherlands with her parents, two brothers and a sister. Her father was one of the top ophthalmic surgeons in Western Australia. To her family, she was a source of happiness, cheer, and love. The Bernies had been cruising for hours looking for a victim when they spotted Susanna hitchhiking. Within seconds of being in the car, Susanna had a knife at her throat and her hands were bound. She was taken back to the Moorhouse House of Horror, where she was gagged and chained to the bed. She was chained up completely nude, and then the rapes began. As covered earlier, David had an insatiable lust for sex, and he now had a child he could molest. And as all things depraved, this turned him on. After Bernie had finished raping the girl the first time, Catherine Bernie got into the bed with them. She now knew that this turned her lover on. The couple decided to keep Susanna for as long as possible as a sex slave. After Susanna went missing, the Bernies forced her to send letters to her family to assure them that she was all right. The family did not find the letters convincing, and rightfully feared for her life. When the Bernies finally had satiated their lust, David tried to strangle the girl with a nylon cord, but she became hysterical and went berserk. The Bernice forced sleeping pills down her throat to calm her down. Once Susanna was unconscious, David put a cord around her neck and told Catherine to prove her undying love for him by murdering the girl. Catherine obliged willingly. She tightened the cord slowly around the young girl's neck until she stopped breathing. David Burney stood beside the bed, watching. They buried Susanna Candy near the grave of Mary Nielsen in the state forest. Asked by authorities later why she had done it, Catherine Burney said, and I quote, Because I wanted to see how strong I was within my inner self. I didn't feel a thing. It was like I expected. I was prepared to follow him to the end of the earth and do anything to see that his desires were satisfied. She was a female. 
Females hurt and destroy males. End quote. But the couple was by no means finished. They had found a new passion in life in the torture, rape, and murder of young women and had no intention of stopping. On the 1st of November, they saw 31-year-old Nolene Patterson standing beside her car on the Canning Highway, East Fremantle. She had run out of petrol while on her way home from her job as a bar manager at the Netherlands Golf Club. Nolene lived with her mother in the leafy suburb of Bicton on the shores of the Swan River. She was an extremely popular lady, and club members described her as charming and polite. She had been an air hostess with Ansett Airlines for nine years, and had worked for corporate tycoon Alan Bond as hostess on his private jet for two years. Nolene had been working at the golf club for about a year when she accepted the Bernie's offer of a lift. Nolene didn't hesitate to get in the car with the friendly couple. Once inside, she had a knife held to her throat, was tied up, and told not to move or she would be stabbed to death. She was taken back to the house on Moorhouse Street where David repeatedly raped her after she was gagged and chained to the bed. Catherine hated Nolene Patterson from the minute she set eyes on her. A beautiful, elegant lady, Nolene was everything that Catherine wanted to be, but was not. What is more, David was entranced by her. They had originally decided to murder Nolene Patterson that same night, but when David kept putting it off, Catherine became infuriated. She feared her beloved David would end up wanting to be with Nolene instead of her. They kept Nolene prisoner in the house for three days before Catherine had enough. At one stage, she held a knife to her own heart and threatened to kill herself unless he chose her and killed Nolene. This shows how Catherine in no way was a poor, simpering slave to David, forced to do his every bidding. She was just as much a murderous force as he was. Finally, he acquiesced to his wife and forced an overdose of sleeping pills down Nolene's throat and strangled her after she fell unconscious. All the while, Catherine stood by watching, making sure that her object of hatred was being killed properly. They took her body to the forest and buried it along with the others. Catherine Burney got great pleasure in throwing sand in the dead woman's face. Less than a week later, on the 5th of November, they abducted 21-year-old Denise Brown as she was waiting for a bus on Sterling Highway. Denise was a fun-loving girl who worked as a part-time computer operator in Perth and spent a lot of her spare time at dances and nightclubs. Unlike the other victims, she had short hair, but she too was a brunette. She shared a flat in Netherlands with her boyfriend and another couple. Denise spent her last night at a cool bell-up hotel with a girlfriend. She accepted a lift from the Bernies 
outside the Stone Crow Wine House in Fremantle. A close friend, said later, and I quote, She was someone who would do anything to help anyone. She trusted too many people. Perhaps that is why she didn't think twice about taking a lift. End quote. At Knife Point, Denise was taken to the house on Moorhouse, chained to the bed and raped. The following afternoon, she was taken to the Wanneroo Pine Plantation. Along the way, they nearly picked up another victim. After the Bernice capture, a 19-year-old student told police how she was offered a lift by two people who she later recognized as Catherine and David Burney from photos in the newspapers. After finishing university for the day, the 19-year-old was walking along Pinger Road, Wanneroo, when a car pulled up beside her. There were two people in the front, and another slumped in the back seat. Later, she realized that the person in the back was probably Denise Brown. The young woman explained the event as follows, and I quote, I felt uneasy. I didn't recognize the car. There was a man driving and a woman in the front seat of the car. The man kept looking down, not looking at me, and the woman was drinking a can of UDL rum and coke. I thought the fact that she was drinking at that time of day was strange. He didn't look at me the whole time. It was the woman who did all the talking. She asked me if I wanted a lift anywhere. I said, no, I only live up the road. They continued to sit there, and I looked into the back seat where I saw a small person with short brown hair lying across the seat. I thought it must have been their son or daughter asleep in the back. The person was in a sleeping position and, from the haircut, looked like a boy, but for some reason I got the feeling it was a girl. I told them again I didn't want a lift because walking was good exercise. The man looked up for the first time and gazed at me before looking away again. By this time more cars had appeared and I started to walk away but they continued to sit in the car. Finally, the car started, and they did another U-turn and drove up Pinger Road towards the pine plantation. It wasn't until I saw a really good photo of Catherine Burney that I realized who they were. Somebody must have been looking after me that day. I don't know what would have happened to me if I had got into that car. End quote. Safely away from the street, in the seclusion of the forest, David Burney brutally raped Denise Brown in the car while the couple waited for darkness. They then dragged the woman from the car and David raped her again. In the light of Catherine's torch, David plunged a knife into Denise's neck while he was raping her. He left the knife in her neck, causing the woman extreme unimaginable pain. Denise didn't die straight away. Catherine Burney, still holding the torch, found a bigger knife and urged her lover to stab her again. He didn't need much prompting. He stabbed Denise in the chest and stomach with the knife until Denise lay silent at his feet. Convinced that the girl was dead, they dug a shallow grave and lay her blood-soaked body in it. 
as they were covering Denise Brown with sand. Denise suddenly sat up in the grave. David grabbed an axe and struck her full force on the skull with it. This, too, did not kill her. She truly had willpower and strength and wanted to live. Denise sat up again, but this time David turned the axe head around and cracked the girl's skull open, exposing and tearing her brain. This time she died. They then finished covering Denise with sand in her shallow grave. By now, police was very much on the trail of the killing couple. On the 10th of November, five days after the disappearance of Denise Brown, Detective Ferguson and Detective Sergeant Vince Katish were following up leads on Denise's disappearance when they got the breakthrough they were so desperately waiting for. They were told on the two-way radio that a half-naked young woman had just staggered into a small village shopping complex and had been taken to the Palmyra police station. Thinking that the missing Denise Brown had turned up, Ferguson and Katish sped to the police station. Instead, it was a 16-year-old girl who told them the most amazing story. The terrified teenager said that she had been abducted at knife point the previous evening by a man and a woman who asked her directions as she was walking along the street near her home in fashionable Netherlands. She was taken to a house in Villagey, where the couple ripped off all of her clothing before chaining her to a bed by her hands and feet. The girl said the man repeatedly raped her as the woman watched. The couple spoke of injecting cocaine into the head of the man's penis. The following morning, after the man had gone to work, the woman unchained the girl and forced her to telephone her parents and tell them that she was staying with friends and that she was okay. While she was using the phone, she was astute enough to note the number written on the telephone. When the woman left the bedroom to answer the door, presumably to let in a cocaine dealer, the girl found an open window and escaped. She was able to give police a full description of her attackers, along with their telephone number and address. The girl led the team of armed detectives to the disheveled white brick house in Moorhouse Street. There was no one at home. Two detectives hid in a panel van, parked in the driveway, and apprehended a very tense and nervous Catherine Margaret Burney when she arrived home. She told them where to look for the man. Minutes later, other detectives picked up David where he worked as a laborer in a spare parts car yard. The Burneys vigorously denied the girl's allegations. Instead, they claimed that she had been a willing party and had gone with them to share a bong of marijuana. Knowing that they needed a confession to confirm their suspicions, Officer Ferguson and Katish hoped that under intense questioning one of the Bernies would crack and at least admit to the rape of the young girl. They grilled the Bernies separately. It was David Burney who eventually cracked. Just after 7 p.m. that evening, Detective Sergeant Katish 
said to David Burney half-jokingly in reference to the missing women, It's getting dark. Best we take a shovel and dig them up. To his astonishment, David replied, and I quote, Okay, there's four of them. End quote. When told of her lover's confession, Catherine Burney also broke. They agreed to take police to the bodies that were buried not far from the city. It was as though it was a load off David Burney's mind. He spoke freely with the detectives as he directed the convoy of vehicles out of the metropolitan area and towards the state forest, north of the city. Detective Sergeant Katish was amazed that neither of the Burnies showed any emotion or embarrassment while the bodies were being uncovered. If anything, they appeared to enjoy being the centre of attention as they pointed the graves out to police. And so it was that on the 12th of November, 1986, David John Burney and Catherine Margaret Burney appeared in Fremantle Magistrates' Court, charged with four counts of willful murder. They stood emotionless as the charges against them were read out. Neither had legal representation. No plea was entered, bail was officially refused, and the Burneys were remanded in custody. The pair was once more separated, and was kept under lock and key until the 10th of February, 1987, when the trial commenced at Perth Supreme Court. David Burney pled guilty to four counts of murder and one count of abduction and rape, thereby sparing the families of his victims the agony of a long trial. Catherine Burney had not been required to plead as her barrister was waiting on a psychiatric report to determine her sanity. She was remanded to appear later that month. Mr. Justice Wallace sentenced David Burney to the maximum sentence of life imprisonment with strict security. He added, and I quote, The law is not strong enough to express the community's horror at this sadistic killer who tortured, raped, and murdered four women. In my opinion, David John Burney is such a danger to society that he should never be released from prison. End quote. Found sane enough to plead, Catherine Margaret Burney admitted her part in the murders and was sentenced on the 3rd of March, 1987, in the Perth Supreme Court. She stood in the dock, holding hands with David Burney, the man who had led her down the path of torture, rape, and murder. Mr. Justice Wallace had no hesitation in handing down the same sentence as that imposed on David Burney. He said, again I quote, In my opinion, you should never be released to be with David Burney. You should never be allowed to see him again. End quote. As she was taken from the court, the scrawny mother of six took one last look at her lover. They would never see each other again. And so ends the saga of the Moorhouse murderers. 
I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. Next week, I will bring you episode 109 and a Christmas serial killer special. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. This podcast would not be possible if it had not been for my dear patrons who pledge their hard-earned money every month. There are especially a few of those patrons I would like to thank in person. These patrons are my 16 most loyal patrons. Many of them have contributed for at least the last 45 episodes. And their names are... Maud, Amber, Anne, Cassandra, Evan, Jennifer, Jill, Kathy, Lisa, Lisbeth, Mark, Mickey, Philip, Russell, Sam, and Troy. You really helped produce this show and you have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. If you wish to join this exclusive club of TSK producers, go to theserialkillerpodcast.com slash donate and pledge $15 or more to have your name read live on this show. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on reddit.com slash theskpodcast. Thank you. Good night, and good luck. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.